The message you are listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for the 2015 April's Leaders Retreat. More information about Campus Outreach Minneapolis can be found at cominneapolis.org. We have fun today. Uh, I have three children, Annie, Lucy, and Eli. My wife Lisa and I do. We've been married for nine years. We have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and uh, Eli is 21 months old. He's 74 months old. Uh, he's 21. He'll be two in June. And I was actually lamenting just the other day that Annie, who used to be the absolute queen of good stories, like... For those of you who've been around long enough to know, Annie had five good stories a day. She was unbelievable with the stories. And she had actually, Lisa and I were, were reminiscing about a, a morning when Annie was, might, might have been three, I guess she was three, and she came out with her full bag packed and told us she was moving to Zambia uh, <laughs> to be with her real family. So she was going to drive there. She had the keys to the van. I was so disappointed when we convinced her. It's a whole story. We were loving it. But today, Andy decided that we were going to go on a nature walk as a family. And, uh, Brick, you want to pull up a picture you got me? Whenever you do. Okay. So, basically, they gathered. This is new. Textbook nature walk. They gathered everything that they own. That's Lucy on the left, Andy on the right. Uh, She wanted to show me in the foyer or foyer. She she had piled up basically everything that they owned for their nature walk, uh, and they got it together. It was maybe maybe a, you know a few drops of rain, so they brought their umbrellas and you know the princess, their frozen lunch boxes and whatnot. Lucy's got a full a full backpack on uh, to go on the nature walk. You got the other photo. I think it's just the goose. Yeah, there she is. So that, that our house is uh, in the background there. We made it about 45, well, maybe 100, 100 yards down the road, and uh, we got to a bush. Annie was so jacked about the nature walk. She'd been talking about it for 24 hours or so, and we, we got about not a block down the road, and she laid out all of her stuff. She flipped open. It was like she was a scientist getting out her equipment, and she flipped open her lunch boxes and stuff, and she had the essentials like her stuffed bunny, a doll, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Uh, the stuff that you really need, and her periscope. So, I, you guys know what a periscope is? It's like a thing for the submarine that it, you can look at things from different angles. So, like you look in here and you can see over there. <laughs> and he pulls out her periscope and holds it against one of the bushes because we're doing a nature walk. She's dead serious at this point. And she looks at it like this, but the periscope on the other end is pointing this way, and she goes, I see my jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Turn it this way, and. Uh, <laughs> It took us, I mean, the, the nature walk, she put a bell around her neck, like a little, you know, like Rudolph Randall's reindeer type bell. She put it around her neck so that she could jingle it in case she got lost in the woods so that her sister could find her. We were on the sidewalk. And, and about 20 minutes later, we came in. We, we managed, I managed to find, because I'm a real nature guy, I found an earthworm, and we saw a bunny in somebody's yard. So we got some good findings. Needed the periscope for nothing. And I thought, oh, Andy Bell. And I, I will tell you, I've forgotten something about Eli the other night. I was talking to St. Thomas students. I want to tell you guys. Eli has really, his vocab is going off the charts. And uh, not like, you know, 20,000 word vocabulary, but 25 or so. <laughs> and he, you know, he'll be two in June. And Eli has started to, 
he's very grateful, so he says, thank you for everything. Like, you hand him anything, he goes, did you? Did you? And then sometimes he'll say, did you? I'm on. Like, he says, thank you, and you're welcome. Both. Or I'll hand you something and say, thank you. And, but he loves to assert his will. He's a very stubborn young man. And so, I'll be like, in the morning, I'll be like, Eli, do you want life cereal? And I'll point at him, and he'll go, no! And I'll look at him like this, and I'll go, no, thank you. <laughs> and I'll say, what about you? He goes, no! has not learned his lesson at all. And so anything I'll offer him that he doesn't want, he'll go, no! No, <laughs> And uh, it reminded me of a guy that used to be on our summer training project. This is my uh, first year on staff. Last thing I'll tell you. This guy, we called him Toronto Tim because he was from Canada. And he was a little guy, about 5'5", five, five, had a highly exaggerated view of himself. And he was a new believer. He went to Western Carolina University and he loved to talk trash to people. And so he'd be like, hey, Brady, man, you suck at basketball. And like he'd start doing it, and somebody corrected him, like wanted to help restore him in that, to help him stop talking trash. So he walked up to me like a week later, he's like, hey, Brady, you suck. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> all the time. That's how he'd operate. He continued to talk trash at the exact same rate, but he just put the epithet, just kidding, right on the end of his sentence. Brady, I'm so much faster than you, just kidding. Just like that, it's like one screw thing. That's what Eli's meant at you. No, touch you. Anyway, so our theme is. Do you guys want to do some kind of drum roll? <laughs> now my adrenaline is rushing. <laughs> the theme is worth it. Worth it is the theme. We're going to be studying the book of Philippians. Anybody heard of Philippians? Uh, and we're going to do worth it. And tonight, I basically want to unpack the theme before we get into the rest of the retreat so that you can have a handle on it for the summer. Now, worth it to me is a catchy theme. That's worth it. We, my student director summer, 2002, our theme was no longer, but it might as well have been at all costs, which was actually a theme later because our students always said at all costs. And what they would do is they'd come to you and say, are you at all costs? And you'd be like, you didn't want to be ashamed. Be like, yeah, I'm at all costs. And they'd be like, all right, let me slap you in the face. And I'm serious. They were some nuts people. Be like, you at all costs? I want you to jump off the third floor balcony into the pool. And it, that was the game, the all summer long. And I feel like this summer with Worth It, it could be that thing. I feel like it's going to be a little catchy, and it's going to be like, worth it? Is it worth it? We're going to go jump off the pier at sunset and see how the sharks handle. See, it's something like that. Um, but it's going to be, I think it's going to be something of a cliche. This is what I would guess, is Worth It is going to be thrown around for everything. And it's possible in the christian sense that Worth It could be thrown around like, is it worth it to get up early? Is it worth it to, you know, extend ourselves into whatever discipline? And that's a good question. It's a good question. Is it worth it? But A, I don't I will not, as far as it depends on me, and as far as it depends on your staff, and as far as now it depends on you, I, we will not let ourselves become a cliched people. We say gospel all the time, don't we? All the time. Everybody talks around gospel, you hear oh, that's the gospel, I just gotta trust the gospel. And for many, it becomes a hollow term. Gospel ceases to have much meaning. We, don't really, we wouldn't be actually able to articulate it maybe to a five-year-old to say, what do I mean when I say I'm doing gospel or I'm trusting gospel? What does that mean? It becomes something of a hollow, you know, cliche, K-T-I-S type of phrase. And, uh, and you know, so it, whoever, it depends who says it on K-T-I-S, right? Um, sorry if any of you Northwestern people work for K-T-I-S or something. Uh, but you know, sometimes it, 
what I'm saying is I think we need ownership. We need ownership of worth it. We need a foundation for what that actually means. We need to be able to articulate what it means. We need to be able to elucidate, make clear what that means. Lisa and I, before we were ever dating, we were just friends. And uh, my wife of nine years. And we, we come from different uh, backgrounds and have very different personalities. And our first ever, I think, fight was we had just gone to a movie at Crown Block E, which doesn't even have a movie theater anymore. And we were in the parking garage. We had a full car, and she was playing a song. I think it was her car. She was playing a song over the, the radio or you know, CD player that was, it goes, mm, how does it go? My lips cannot describe you, but my heart will sing. You guys ever heard that song before? Because it came out 15 years ago? <laughs> uh, my lips cannot describe you, but my heart will sing. And I remember hearing that, that chorus and saying, that doesn't make any sense. That song doesn't make sense. My lips cannot describe you, but my heart will sing. What am I singing about if my lips can't describe him? That doesn't make any sense to me. And Lisa's like, come on, it's just a song of joy. And we had a fight, uh, a friend fight. And, you know, and I was kind of interested at the time. I was like, how oh, can I make this work? But, <laughs> the, uh, but that, the idea would be that we want you to be able to describe, to describe what it means when we say, for example, Jesus is worth it, or it's worth it, or this summer is worth it. We want to be able to describe what that means. And so the aim for me tonight, from me to you, is to help you know, understand, and feel worth it. Okay? So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get into the, the questions. Father, we believe that you're worth it. Lord Jesus, we believe that you're worth it. We believe that to give our lives to you is a happy and good decision. We believe that every cost counted was worth counting, and now here we are in your good graces. We believe that, and I pray that tonight you would help that to run just another layer deeper, a little bit closer to ownership, a little bit more like our heartbeat, and that would resonate on the, on the beach project, on the summer training project, project, and it would, that idea would be propagated by these students into the hearts of all of the students, the disciples, everybody that's going to join us, and all those who are going to be met in the UK, and all those who are going to be met in the Twin Cities, everybody in groups in the Twin Cities project. I pray that the idea of worth it would see, sit deeply in our hearts so that your name would be lifted up and we would have great joy. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the two questions that I'm asking tonight are, number one, what is the it that it's worth? We say it's worth it. Worth what? What are we losing? That's the first question. And the second question is, who or what is worth it? Okay, the answer is going to be Jesus. We know the answer is going to be Jesus, but just suspend your Sunday school answer for just a minute. And let's really get into what the text says. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Okay? So it's either tomorrow's or the next day's devotional, so you're going to get a real head start on this. Uh, but Philippians 3, 1 through 11. So let's look at it together. All right, verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, 
who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So, my first question from this text is, I mean, the big questions are, what is it that it's worth for what is worth it? So my question from the text is, what is Paul losing? What's Paul losing? I see two things big, in big categories that he's losing. What are those two things? They're in verse 7 and 8. You can say it. Two big categories of things that he's losing. What's that? Whatever gain he had is number one. Whatever things were gained to him, that's number one. And what's the second thing? Huh? Everything. All things. Taupanta in the Greek. It's an unqualified phrase. It means everything. So he's losing whatever things were gained to him, and he's losing everything. More than whatever things are gained to him, actually he's losing everything. So what were the things that were gained to him? Let's talk together. What were the things that were gained to Paul? In what, in what specific ways did he demonstrate that? Pause real quick. Um, if you, this is one of the challenges of big groups. We got a bystander effect. If you have a thought, and there's a real good chance that you're right. Uh, and so I, I want you to learn, it's gonna take time over the summer, but I want you to learn to be able to say what you're thinking. And if you're wrong, Fine, we're all wrong when we say stuff a lot, but I'd love for you to say something. I just want you to feel safe, okay? So, if you have a thought, because I bet three quarters of the people in the room, maybe more, already have an answer and it's the right answer, but all of you are thinking maybe someone else is going to say it and I shouldn't say it. So let's try. What's something, now, now I'm going to get 40 people to say it at the same time. What's, what's something specifically that was gained to Paul? It's called his status. He's a boss Pharisee. He's a boss Pharisee, Okay. <laughs> That's what he says in verse 5, as to the law of Pharisee. What else? I mean, that's kind of a summation, but what, what else does he say? Of the tribe of Benjamin. Thank you. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so he's got a birthright there, a Hebrew of Hebrews in that sense. Okay. Member of the covenant of Abraham. All right. He's a member of the covenant of Abraham. How do you know he's a member of the covenant of Abraham? Because he was circumcised on the eighth day. Okay. So uh, 
he went through that process. Um, anything else? Righteousness under the law. All right. So he has righteousness under the law. He, he practiced the law blamelessly. Is he saying that he was perfect? What's he saying? That's right. He did it all right. Everything that you were supposed to do, all the meticulous things that you would read in Leviticus, our fake theme book, he did them all perfectly. Okay? And I'll just add verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, which within the Jewish community, the Pharisaical community, was considered big dog. If you remember when Stephen was killed, when Stephen was martyred, they were throwing their cloaks, their robes, at the feet of a young man named Saul. He was a big dog. He was a righteous man. He, when, when he said, hey, persecute these Christians, these blasphemers, that was a righteous thing. So the things that were gained to him were basically his spiritual pedigree, the things he was born with and the things that he performed, both. The things he was born with and the things he practiced. So in summation, we would say his fleshly moral confidence. So in verse 3, he says, we are the real circumcision. He's talking about we Christians who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So he's saying, I had great confidence in my flesh. Big time confidence in my flesh. So the question I want to ask you before we move on is what things are or were, and more are in this case, gained to you? in the confidence in the flesh sense. So right now, I don't mean what's gained to you like, I want a big house, all right? I mean, what's gained to you in terms of your personal status? What are things that are gained to you either morally or otherwise? Because I think Paul is, becomes all-encompassing in, in verses seven and eight. But what things are gained to you? And in two categories here, what are the things that are gained to you by birth, like you're born with? I don't know why this is, but I feel this very much. I would rather boast in the things that I'm born with than the things that I worked for. I don't know if you guys are like me in that. It's a weird thing. It, it doesn't make any sense. It seems like I would boast. It's like, why would I boast in the things that I'm born with? Those are the things that I had nothing to do with. And at least I can try to say that I had something to do with something I worked for. But for whatever reason, if we're talking about athleticism, if we're talking about intellect, I have this thing in me that wants to say, I'm just naturally good at it. My dad and I used to play ping pong. Uh, and we'd play, like we wouldn't have played for a long time, and we'd step out onto the porch where the ping pong table was, and he'd say, or I'd say, natural born athlete competition, and we decided that ping pong was the decider of natural born athletes. <laughs> and we'd play ping pong. And for whatever reason, we wanted to boast about our natural born athleticism. We want to boast about these things that were innate in us as if they were somehow ours. So what are the things that are yours by birth that are gained to you? The things that are gained to you means the things that you find status in, that you find pride in, that you find acceptance in, either with God or with people. And these could be either moral things or worldly, secular things, whether it be your intellectual ability, your athletic ability, your winsomeness or your humor, your looks, uh, your kindness, even. It could be spiritual things. What are the things, and I want you to take 30 seconds right now and think about what those things are to you. What are the things that are gained to you that are still, they still feel like gained to you? Or things that maybe you felt like you've been fighting to die to, but they're still there somewhat. By birth. Things that you feel natural at, you feel gifted at.
Now I want to talk about the things that are gained to you by practice. Okay? This could be how much you study the Bible or how much you pray. This could be how much you study the, your school subjects. This could be any sort of volunteerism you do. This could be, I mean, fill in the blank, how hard you've worked at your sport to be the best. Whatever it might be, what things are gained to you by practice? Take a few. Okay. So you know what those things are in your heart on some level. Now, my next question is, and I really want you to examine yourself here. Have they become lost to you? Have they become lost to you? When Paul talks about them in verse 7, he says, whatever, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He used the word, uses the word loss on purpose. He, I guess he could have said even nothing or a neutral, all these good things, his religiosity. But he says loss. I think he says loss because all of his attempting to prove himself to God are actually, not only are they not just neutrals or slight positives, they're actually negatives. The more he tries hard to present his righteous deeds to God, the more they pre pre present themselves to God as filthy rags. So my question is whether in the moral realm or the other side, kind of worldly status, status in the eyes of men and women realm, have these, have these things become lost to you? Lost to you? Rubbish to you? Or at least, are they becoming lost to you? Have you identified these things? This is why we do this exercise right now. Have you identified these things and said, that is loss. And I know that in my heart I feel like it's gained still, but I don't like that. It's loss. And I'm going to beg the Lord for it to become lost all the way down to the bottom. I'll tell you what I'm talking about. I was sitting in the van on the way up here. I was talking with Zach Lang. Zach, where are Hey, buddy. We were talking about running and different things, and I, he'd ask, I'd ask him knee surgeries, and he asked me uh, how I'd gotten hurt, or somebody did, maybe Jacob Clement did, and I said, uh, one of the ways I said was I was pole vaulting, and I got hurt, he said, oh, did you pull out in college? And in that moment, what happens to me, in, in my mind and in my heart, I think, I really want to be able to say that I pole vaulted in college. I didn't pole vault in college, uh, but I want to make an excuse. Uh, uh, and it may be that the next things out of my mouth are truthful or not. The next things out of my mouth were truthful. But in my heart, in that moment, what happens is whether or not I pole vaulted in college is gain to me. It's another means of identity. Okay? It's a performance for me. And so as opposed to just saying, nope, and, and in the depth of my soul, I say, whatever things were gained to me, like how well I could pole vault, I count those as loss. I used to try to prove myself at pole vaulting, and those are loss in the kingdom of God. That's loss. It's not gain to me anymore. That's what I'm asking you. What are those things? Have they become or are they becoming lost to you? One of the things that I really want to emphasize right now is being a good spiritual leader. And is it lost to you. I think I was talking to one of you today and uh, who's here for the second year and you, whoever you are, said that it was hard to focus last year at the retreat because 
there was a lot of comparison going on, and you were thinking about how you could feel or present yourself as a good spiritual leader, right? And the great irony, of course, is that all of the things that Paul is saying in this text are precisely his identity as a good spiritual leader, aren't they? A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, he's saying, I was a big dog spiritual leader, and I put no stock in that anymore. That was gain to me, and now it is loss. So, the irony here is what it means to be a good spiritual leader is to die to spiritual leadership as your identity. You see that? What it means is to count your good spiritual leadership as ultimately as loss as far as it would confer any status on you. That's hard. It's hard. I don't know if you feel that, but I feel that. So, the things that were gained to him were specifically his status in the world, and in his world, that was his spiritual pedigree, specifically as he might obtain salvation from God by being righteous, by performing active righteousness, okay? So the next question is, what are the all things? Because he says in verse 7, whatever gain I had, those are the things listed before, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, tau panta, everything, all-inclusive, as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The word there, the Greek word, is something between um, poop and shh. <laughs> Tough. Uh, in order that I might gain Christ. So the question is, what are the un- all things? And we know that it's unqualified, but I think in the, in the context, when you think about Paul's life specifically, it, when... When Jesus said about Paul, I, must show, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Specifically, I think he's moving from personal accolades or confidence in his own flesh to actual, actual worldly comforts. So he's moving from, here are the things that were gained to me, here's my status, and now I've actually suffered the loss of all the circumstantial stuff too. All the worldly comforts. I've counted all that stuff as loss as well. So in Galatians 6 verse 14 when he says far be it for me to boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I think that's probably including both his spiritual status and anything that the world would have to offer. Any creature comfort that the world would have to offer. Even the relational comforts that the world would have to offer. So it immediately made me think of a song. We're going to sing it tonight. It's called Jesus on My Cross I've Taken. We sang it at Bethlehem, for the, at least downtown, for the first time that I can remember. Last week or the week before, I was like, yes, this is such a good song. We used to have it in our shower, but it got moldy. Um, <laughs> that's what water does. So it, it says this. I'll just read you a couple of verses. It says, well, the first verse is, Jesus on my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. Goes on to say, let the world despise and leave me, they have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me, thou art not like them untrue. O while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate, and friends disown me, show thy face, and all is bright. And then this verse, this is where it gets into worldly comfort specifically. Go then, earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn, and pain. That is weird. 
In thy service pain is pleasure. With thy favor loss is gain. I have called thee Abba Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good to me. This is why worth it is a bigger theme than just a summer. This is, I, we, we had, when we were thinking about the theme, the worth it theme, one of the things we were thinking was, this could be helpful for summer recruitment, to, to have worth it on your shirt, and be like, hey, what's that from? It's like, summer training wide project, it was worth it. It is worth it. Uh, that's how you would say it, too. It's worth it. Uh, that's exactly how college students talk. Uh, it's a... It, to say it was worth it, and you think, yeah, that's right. This is the microcosm of my whole life. Uh, I took two months in a crappy hotel, and I didn't have an internship. It was worth it. That's what it means. That, that's what worth it means. I'd say that's not exactly what worth it means. It's not a real sacrifice to come down to the project for two months. It really is not. And I don't mean that in some sort of spiritual way. I mean that like in a commonsensical way. It's not. You get to live in a hotel... Most of you get your support raised. You're at the beach. You get to work. Uh, you're with your friends, and you miss out on too much of an internship, but it's probably not going to affect your career one way or the other. So while I would say it is on some level a sacrifice, I don't want to be condescending. On some level it is a sacrifice, and you all have to make it. I would just say it's so much bigger than a summer. We're talking about an entire life of worth it. And so when you start thinking about the loss of children and parents, deaths of parents, and specifically the loss of friendships, which you will have lots of, people who will not respect you, not nearly the same way as they used to, there's going to come a day for you, and maybe, maybe you are, go to one of the Christian colleges and you've spent your life with Christians all around you. A, I would say your life shouldn't be like that for the rest of your life. And B, it probably won't. You're going to have non-believers around you for the rest of your life, and they will potentially hate and disown you. In fact, I wouldn't even say potentially. The reason I wouldn't say that is because the Bible says that. It says that you will be hated and disowned. And so it may be that in all your life you've been affirmed. Your parents love you dearly. Not everybody, but some. Your parents love you, and your friends love you, and you go to school, and you make good grades and the whole thing. And what it means to be a Christian in the world is that foes may hate and friends disown you. And disaster and scorn and pain come. And so you're counting that cost. That's what it means to say that it's worth it. You're counting more than just, ooh, two, two months. I think I can, I think I can stick it out. Uh, it's, it's really saying all of the things that used to be gained to me, whether my status, my confidence in the flesh, intellectual ability, Ability to prove myself in the world, etc. Or creature comforts. And I would include in that not only relationships and you know, family relationships, I would include now any circumstance that includes disease or financial security. Man, that's a big one. Financial security. Are you willing to say financial security is something that's lost to you? Financial security is lost to you? There's a guy I was meeting with on the U of M football team some years ago. He was a giant guy. 
and he rode a moped, and he would give me rides on the moped, and he was 325 or something. It was a precarious moment every time. And he used to ride with his roommate, who was also a 300-pound lineman. He was like the circus. And, and uh, we were sitting out at Chipotle one day, and he was real interested in this. He just, I'd done a devotional with the team, and he, and he came to me after. He's like, I want to talk about this some more. And we sat down and talked some more. And he said, I was talking to him about you know, living in the suburbs with 2.1 kids and a white picket fence and, and the call to be a believer. And he said, well, can I have both? And I said, it may be that you end up with both. But in foresight, no. You can't have both. No one can serve two masters. You cannot have both. You die to the one to live to the other. That's the way it works to be a believer. If you have a fond ambition for something other than Jesus, according to the text, I think you must, on some level, count it as loss. Do you hear me? That means if you're thinking, in prayer, here I come. That has to die on some level in your heart. Sorry, Reed. Uh, <laughs> DP. Uh, that has to die in your heart somewhere. And, and, and you know that the circumstances are going to come. My sister has breast cancer. She's 32 years old. She's got to be basically on this menopause-inducing medicine until she hits menopause. And she's got a long way to go, all right? If the doctors have told her, if your cancer comes back, you will die. That's heavy. My son is about to have a throat surgery in a month. They have to put a laser in his throat and make cuts in his throat and cauterize his throat. His throat is this big. It's a dangerous surgery. I think maybe not the most dangerous. Paul's daughter has systemic onset juvenile idiopathic arthritis. It means that she has an autoimmune disease that could kill her, very much kill her. We're praying that her pituitary gland that doesn't work would work because all sorts of complications come from that. And that's just a given. Those are the things that we're saying, come, come, disaster, scorn, and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. So my question to you is, are you prepared to lose all things? All things. Do you even have a category for that? The exercise that I, I like to do, I've thought about before, is, you know, in the Matrix, there's the, just the construct where it's just white. Everything around you is just blank, and it's just you. And I was thinking today, I'm like, okay, you, you, you put yourself in the embrace of the God of the universe. He loves you. You're with him. You know, Trinity wrapped around you, however you want to say it. And there's nothing else. I think that's what this text means. You do this exercise and you let that embrace fill out everything else in your life. So, you, so the construct will be populated with other wonderful things that flow from him. But he is not simply a category or a character in the construct. He is all. Those verses in the Old Testament, like in Psalm 16 or Psalm 73, that say that the Lord is my chosen portion and my lot. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. We mean it. That's not a throwaway phrase. We don't say that to say, yeah, 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 but everybody needs all this other stuff too. No, that's not how we talk. We die to possess nothing, and then we can start possessing everything. Maybe the exercise, if you want to think of it this way, would be Abraham and Isaac. Okay, so the Lord calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, and when Abraham has the knife ready, you know, at least this is, this is our image. He has the knife ready and the Lord says, no, I provide a, a lamb or a ram for you. Struggling over in the thicket. 
And it's that moment where he says, am I ready? Everything? Everything? And whatever is sitting under that knife for you, that's what you're handing to the Lord and saying, I sacrifice that. There is nothing, 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 nothing I was born with, no status in this world, no, no creaturely circumstance, no comfort, nothing that I'm going to hold out for. I die. That's what it means. So, that's the second question. If, that's, if that was what the cost, the it that it's worth, what is worth it? What's the exchange? What is it that we gain? And we see pretty clearly in the text a few phrases here. Verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So we have for the sake of Christ, we have knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then Paul goes on to say, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So we know that Christ is worth it. And he uses this different phrasing, for the sake of Christ, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that I might gain Christ. So I just want to ask the question, what does that mean? What does it mean? What do you get in return? As opposed to, so when we say, you know, I want you to say all the time, when we say Jesus is worth it. You don't say it all cheesy like, you, you know, at least have it in your head and you can decide. I always, I always feel funny when someone, like you ask them how they're doing, like better not deserve. And I go, I, it's true, it's so true. I don't know if I just have this thing in me that feels awkward because it feels so cheesy. Uh, I want you to at least feel it. Feel this idea that Jesus is worth it, but I want to lay some groundwork here so we can talk about what that means. So, this is what it means. Verse 9. We'll start at the end of verse 8. And that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not, have a, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So, I think what happens here at least one commentator I was reading said this, and I agree. I think what happens here is Paul realizes when he says, in order that I may gain Christ, he realizes that he used language in this moment that was a little too aggressive. That I might get Christ. Well, what I mean by it is I might be found in him. In other words, he finds me. I find myself and be found in him. It's passive. It's the same language that's used in Galatians 4 when it says, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, that's what's happening here, I think. Paul is saying that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That's what it means to gain him, is I'll be found in him. This is a righteousness issue. This is an acceptability issue. So everything that he said in verses 4, 5, and 6, his confidence in the flesh, basically that summarized his panicked pursuit of righteousness with God, right? This is what I'm going to do if I can just... if I can. Be the best Jew, the best Pharisee that I can be, the most righteous person I can be and do the law perfectly, then I can get righteousness with God. And what it means to be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that means that this is his replacement. Verse 9 is the, is the cornerstone of this text. All right, this is, this is his replacement. He's saying, the former things I used to try to do, rubbish. Filthy rags. And now, this passive reality is I'm found in him because of everything Jesus did for me. And it's worth it. And you might say, man, that's really good news. You're saying Jesus does everything for free and you don't have to keep toiling anymore. Why would we even talk about that as worth it? That's kind of a dub. 
Yeah, it's worth it. It's free. What's the cost? You tell me, what's the cost? Why is that hard? Sounds like a good deal. Why is it hard? Right. Okay. Elaborate. Mm. Yeah, I think like I have a <clears throat> intense grasping at being at myself like being worthful or mm -hmm. or worth it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it comes it's like it's like more tangible to me mm -hmm. when it's in relation to other people and how they feel about me. It's more tangible than like because I, I mean I know God realizes that I myself am like not worth it. Right. But for other people that's like a tangible. Right. Um, I got taste buds for that, and I want them to think that right. I am. Right. So, Amen. Amen. You guys all feel that? You. The cost is, I have to say that I'm not in myself because of my own actions or my own innate worth, not that given to me by God. That I'm. I can't say that I'm worth it just because of me. I can't do enough to be worthy just because of me. And that's a bitter little pill to swallow, isn't it? For your flesh. That doesn't, that doesn't taste good. Tastes wonderful to the spirit, but not so to the flesh. But that's what it means when we say worth it. So every morning of the summer training project, if you want to say something when you wake up, if you want to say it's worth it. This morning you wake up and you say, it's worth it. You're not simply saying it's worth it to get up at 6.30 to pray and read. What you're saying is this great exchange that I have made it's worth it. This great exchange is that today I will not seek to prove myself. Today I will put no confidence in my flesh. None. I won't do it. You beg the Lord for help. So I won't do it because Jesus is my righteousness. I am found in him. And it's worth it. That's what it means to say worth it. Okay, That's the, the, the cornerstone of this passage in terms of what's worth it. All right? It's worth it to make that exchange and to live in that exchange. Second thing that it means, what is worth it? What's the exchange? The first is to be found in him with his righteousness, not yours. The second thing is, Paul says in verses 10 and 11, that I may know him. He says it a number of times in the previous verses, and then he says it in a, and makes it clear, I think, with these subheadings in verses 10 and 11, that I may know him. So you might ask, if the passive reality is to receive his righteousness and try to, try to do righteousness. What's my active reality? What do I do over the course of my days when I'm at the summer training project, for example? What do I do? And the answer is, it's a really funky question. Uh, it's a dangerous question. But some of the answer, according to Paul's mission here, is you try to know him. You try to know Jesus. That's your active reality. That's your grand purpose. Now before, what Paul was doing... According to verse 3 and 4, he says, We are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. This is the previous reality was he's saying, not that I may know him, but that he and everybody else may know me and my greatness. They may know my greatness. I will exalt myself before everybody else. And he says, no, we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's the exchange. To be new, to be you in, in Christ, to be new means now I glory in Christ Jesus and I put no confidence in the flesh. That's, that's a good summation statement for what it means to be a Christian. 
I glory in Christ Jesus. I put no confidence in the flesh. So it's not now I'm worth it. It's he's worth it. I get to know him. <laughs> Paul jokingly texted me that there's a song by Fifth Harmony called Worth It. I don't know if you guys have heard it. But it's basically a girl singing about how worth it she is for a guy to like her. I'm worth it. I'm worth it. I'm worth it. I'm worth it. I, 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 I am worth it. I'm worth it. I'm worth it. Uh, it's a little catchier than that. Uh, but, but what he's saying is that I may know him. And then he gets into, in verses 10 and 11, the subheadings for what it means to know him. And these are the things that he says. Number one, the power of his resurrection. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Well, what does that mean? What is that resurrection power? I'll give you a picture from Ephesians 3. Paul says this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. There it is. The resurrection power, I think it's the same power that he mentions in verse 20 of chapter 1 in Ephesians. He says, uh, so that Christ, this is what the power of the spirit in your inner being strengthening you does. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what it means to be filled with spiritual power, the power of the resurrection, that transformational power, is ultimately for you to be filled with a view of Christ and all of his love for you. That's what it says in Romans chapter 5 when it says that the love of Christ has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit. His love gets poured into your heart. So don't think like Voldemort, Elder Wand type of power. Uh, Lisa and I, sorry if you're you know, big time anti-witchcraft. I am in, in a real way. Just not anti, I'll never watch the Harry Potter movies. And, or that was double negative. The, so in, we watched, Lisa and I watched the last one, if I'm ruining it for you, five years ago. Uh, it, and, and Voldemort tries to get the Elder Wand, all right? And the Elder Wand is the most powerful wand that there is. And like the end of the Deathly Hallows Part 1, he shoots it up into the air like this. And it's this big thing where he has garnered this power. And I think sometimes when we think about receiving the power of God, there can be a lot of that verses 4, 5, and 6 in us that goes, can't wait to get that God power so I can be powerful. I'm going to be powerful. And you should ask yourself, why do I want to go to heaven? What is it that I want? Do I want to be powerful and known as powerful? Or do I want to see more, enjoy more, know more of Jesus and let that fill my heart? And there will be an experiencing of power as we with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are transformed into the same, formed into the same image. But remember that that image, the image of Jesus, is this deferential, others-exalting, I-love-my-father image. Right? Never a self-exalting. So when he wants the power of his resurrection, that's what he means. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, what the apostle wants then is not power so that he might be thought powerful, but power so that he might be conformed to the will of God. Only the power that brought Jesus back from death will do. That's number one. Number two, share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is a weird one. When I, I always love Philippians 3, 7, and 8, and 9. Verse 10 and 11, I'm kind of like, uh, I'll trail off when I read those. Uh, these are tougher. But when he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, basically what he's saying is to be him is to know him. 
To experience his life is to know him. So when he says in Philippians 1, 21, to live is Christ. You know, we always talk about to live is Christ and to die is gain, but we spend a lot more time on that second one. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm saying to live is Christ, this is what he means. To share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so that you know him. It's like you know a person by walking a mile in their shoes. You know him this way. You, you, you know the sufferings that he walked through. You understand his compassion when you walk through it. At least, and Paul mentions this a number of times, taking, taking on the afflictions of Christ. At least what you get to feel is his love for you by doing his love for other people. By acting out his love for other people. Does that make sense? So it's like you get an experience of, almost this out-of-body experience of Christ's love for you. Because what you get to do, what Paul got to do, was suffer for other people. And he's like, oh, I love them so much. And when he suffered for them, he felt, oh, this is Jesus for me. I know him. I know him. Therefore, I welcome suffering. I welcome it. And I don't, I don't think we're good at this. I don't think we talk about it very much. We can talk about suffering as Jesus sympathizes with us in our sufferings or God uses it for our good. But I wonder if when we think about Romans 8, 28, we think about God using it for our good by conforming us to the image of Christ. That's the point. He used it for our good because we get to experience Jesus, because we get to know him, so that there would be for you not some sort of weird masochistic, like, I just like pain, but uh, the idea of... of Knowing Jesus by suffering, by knowing his love for you by suffering. You get to experience, you get to walk in what he walked in. Do you think this when you suffer? Before you suffer? Do you think it? When you think, what, I'm about to sacrifice something for someone else. Do you think, I'm about to get, I get to share his sufferings. This is better. All the other stuff was lost. This is gain. And the last thing he says is to attain the resurrection of the dead. It's a fairly controversial text. Uh, I think it means basically just make it heaven. Uh, and we're not going to talk about it too much except to say this is how he gets to know Jesus completely. I think this is a qualitative reality more than a temporal one. It's not so much talking about time as it is quality of life, abundance of life, when he gets to know Jesus finally and fully. So, to conclude, when we say worth it, it's worth it. Jesus is worth it. What we mean is having Jesus as our righteousness and knowing him as our final treasure, okay, is worth losing all other status and all other ambitions for. Every fond ambition. Having Jesus as our righteousness, our acceptance before God, and knowing him as our final treasure, the one that we want to know. I want to know him more than anybody else. I want to know all y'all. Okay? That's a southern phrase. It's convenient. All y'all means people are fascinating. I want to know you. I want to know every bit of God-imagingness that's in you. I want to experience that. I want to know you. I want you to know me in all the healthy ways. Okay? Jesus is the one that we say, I want to know him in all of those healthy, intimate type of ways, all the way up to marriage ways. I want to know him. I want him to know. I want to be all the way, to use marriage terms, naked before him, unashamed before him and have him know me and I will worship him forever. And I want that more than any other status. I want that more than any other relationship. I want that more than any worldly treasure. I want that more than financial security. So much so that I would say I'm dead to everything else. 
This includes your husband or your wife in an ultimate, in an ultimate sense. Dead to that. Okay? Every fond ambition. So, how does this work? Can I not have any more ambitions for Matt than to know Jesus? That's the question. That's a natural question, right? Can I not have any more ambitions? Normal say, can I have any more? I got some normal ambitions in my life. Normal applied to medical school, right? Can I not have any more normal ambitions in my life? I got to do this whole know Jesus thing. What about all the normal stuff I got going on in my life? Med school and stuff. Um, sort of rubber meets the road, right? And normal, I think you're fine with me using these I'm not saying normal thinking through this badly, just using medical school example. Uh, what I would say is, normal can't have any more normal ambitions for his life in the normal as his own entity type of way. Normal can't think, normal's going to make a name for normal. He can't think, well, I've got to get to med school because I've got to be a great doctor because I need some more identity in my life. Not according to the text. Normal can't say financial security, so it's non-negotiable. Can't. According to 1 Timothy 6, normal can't desire to be rich and deny the true master that he has who really carries him. And neither can you. You can't have another ambition in your life. You're going to spend the rest of your life working out exactly how that works because I'm not saying you shouldn't go to medical school. I'm saying every ambition ought to be conformed to this mission statement of Paul's, which is Jesus is worth counting everything else as lost for. And so now all of these ambitions sit under the heading of being found in Christ and knowing him. You work it out forever. And know this, know this, because it drives me crazy. One of the great wonders of being found in him, not having a righteousness of your own derived from the law, is that when your ambitions are off, you're okay. <laughs> It, just because you have sin, as long as you continue to not want sin or hate it on some level, you're in. You're in. That's the beauty of verse 9. So I don't want you to panic over these things. I, just, I do want you to fight for them by His Spirit. So, it's not, this is the last thing I'll say, it's not a close battle. It's not a close battle. Uh, I want you to hear me. It's not like the, the right way to think about your Christian life is you wake up in the morning and you have a little scale in front of you, like one of those balances you had in your science lab. And you go, okay, I'm going to put the Jesus stuff on this side, put the world stuff on this side. We'll see what pans out today. It's not a close battle. Jesus wins by a lot. Okay? You hear me say it, just so you don't think we're going to gut it out and it's going to be worth it. Maybe we'll make it through the summer. Maybe we'll make it through this vapor's breath of a life. We get unshakable righteousness. The opinion that matters in the universe says, perfect, child, mine, adopted, come in. That's big time. That doesn't compare to Pharisee of Pharisees. That doesn't compare to you and your Bible study. It doesn't compare. One is better. One's basically invisible. Number two, you get the source of all beauty and love in the universe calling you his bride, his friend, his son, his daughter, the source, everything you see around you that's beautiful, everything you see around you that's desirable, the one that made it all, you get him, as opposed to all the stuff that he made. It's not a close call, not a close battle. And then 
Finally, you get all of it forever. Forever. You get this little vapor's breath of a life that maybe there's some sacrifices to be made and then you get that forever. Things that you don't all the way see right now. It's not a close call. It's not the same thing as choosing whether or not you're going to go on the summer training project. That can be a close call. It's hard sometimes. Like, should I get the internship? It's going to help me in my career. I don't know. I want to advance God's kingdom in the realm of engineering, and I don't know if I should do that in the realm of engineering this summer or if I should go you know, be transformed by the renewing of my mind a little bit and build my foundation as a Christian. Tough call. I got two months. This is not a, close, a tough call. So I want you to hear me say this so that the next time that you're battling, and we will battle. We have this flesh that rages in us, and we will battle, and it's going to feel like it's on the scales. I want there to be this little voice in your head that says, the fact that I'm battling this at all or considering it as if they're comparable is a foolish thing. It's a foolish thing. I know I'm doing it, and I I know you're going to do it for the rest of your life, but I just want that little voice to sit in your head for the rest of your life. I want to sit in your head all summer so that when you start the battle, you go, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you, Lord Jesus, are the Holy One of God. And it's not a close battle. You are worth it. And that's what it means. So let's pray. Father, I ask now that as we sing to you, we would feel a renewed sense of worth it. That you, Lord, are worth it. You who have made us. You who have thought and spoken flowers and wind and laughter and every good food and people and relationship into existence by being relationship by your being relationship was in existence you have given yourself to us in all our filthy rags everything we have tried to present you have forgiven those things Remove them from us as far as the east is from the west by your son's death on the cross. And you have said, you are perfect to me. You're mine and you can't do anything about it. You are found in me now. Your righteousness is not derived from you, not found in you. It's found in me by faith according to what I did. And now, Lord, we can know you freely. I pray that we would welcome you in every way. I pray that we would welcome suffering that we might know you. We want that full resurrection from the dead and we are conformed to to your image so that we might see you clearly, enjoy you clearly, love fully, all selfishness, all confidence in the flesh taken away, but we know all of that to be a miracle. So we pray that right now, even as we sing, even as we think, even as we meditate on you, your spirit would come and help us to grasp the dimensions of your love that we might be filled to all of your fullness. Praise you for these people, these brothers and sisters in here, that we can be one body together, enjoying you together, and I pray that we would be iron sharpening each other toward the non-close call that this is to be able to say for the summer that you're worth it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach Minneapolis. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at campusoutreach.org.